us hear the word of God as it's written in Paul's first letter to the Philippians, reading chapter 1, verses 1 to 26. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to think of this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best, so that on the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will result in my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Let us pray. Holy Spirit of God, would you come now upon the preaching of your word so that it may open before us to our minds and hearts and we might grow in our dependence on you and on its message. Grant that I may speak faithfully now in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you for the invitation to supply the pulpit here at Courtright once again. I thought uh, this morning that the message I would like to share with you should center on the providence of God. There's great reassurance in the providence of God and what the Bible teaches, especially as we face uncertain days. And as Christians, we all face uncertain days. But in a ministerial vacancy, there's a particular kind of uncertainty as you wonder what kind of future will open up in the next phase of ministry. Of course, uncertainty is nothing new for the people of faith. And the ministry of the Apostle Paul contained many phases over the course of which he learned to trust the providence of God. This morning, we're looking at his testimony as he shares it in the opening chapter of the letter to the Philippians. Now, this letter, of course, has a context, and we gain some important background information on the relationship of Paul and the people to whom he's writing out of Acts 16, which gives us the account of what happened on Paul's very first visit to the city of Philippi. The Philippians are a Christian community in Macedonia to the north of Greece, formed during Paul's second missionary journey around 50 AD. The city was a colony of Rome which lay along the main east-west road, and so it was a bustling center of commerce as well as a military outpost. It had all the typical institutions of Roman culture. There was a theater of Dionysus, a temple of Zeus, and many other temples to Roman deities. Acts 16 records that two people were converted there under Paul's initial ministry. Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman whom he encountered at the place of Jewish prayer, and a jailer who was probably a Gentile and some kind of underling in the Roman civil service or military hierarchy. Maybe he was a retired soldier. Both uh, Lydia and the Philippian jailer, whose name we don't know, are baptized together with their household as the very first Christians in Europe. And Paul and his companions stay at the house of Lydia. Paul's imprisonment in Philippi came about after he cast out a spirit of divination from a slave girl, making her useless to her owners for purposes of fortune-telling. The slave owners are upset at their lost revenue, and they complain to the, that these Jews have come in upsetting Gentile customs. So the authorities, assuming that Paul and his companions are just Jews with no rights, flog them and imprison them overnight. Before Paul points out, you should not have done that without giving us a trial because we are Roman citizens. But the imprisonment works out rather well for Paul because God sends an earthquake to release him from his shackles, which impresses the local people. 
and the unlawful flogging puts the authorities in an embarrassed position, and Paul gets to speak with the jailer, and so it's all good. After Philippi, Paul continues on to the other Macedonian city of Thessalonica before heading south to the cities of Athens and Corinth in the region of Achaia. Paul commends the generosity of both these regions, probably to spark a stewardship rivalry between them. But whereas rich Achaia to the south has to be goaded into giving, the poorer region of Macedonia seems to be spontaneously generous. Paul thanks the Philippians not only for their generous contribution to the collection he's gathering for poor believers in Christ in Jerusalem, but also for their provision for him personally while he's in prison. Of all the congregations that Paul works with, he seems to have the warmest feeling toward the Philippians. They aren't perfect, and his letter addresses some of their flaws, but Paul remarks 16 times in this letter of only 104 verses how he is filled with joy whenever the Philippians cross his mind. Now, 12 years have elapsed since Paul's initial visit to Philippi in 50 AD and 62 AD when he writes this letter to them. At the time, he's under house arrest in Rome. And as he thinks on the Philippian progress in the faith and their material generosity, which has benefited him, they are a source of great solace to him. As he reflects, Paul's banner over these past 12 years of his life is, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Or in the words of Dame Julian of Norwich, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That's the message that he pours into chapter one, and he can see it in three different ways. He can see that God works his all good purpose out, first of all, in the inner life of the Christian. Secondly, in the external circumstances of life. And third, in a world that is populated by evildoers. With this triple layer of divine goodness actively at work on his behalf, Paul feels well able to face whatever trouble may come. Paul was no stranger to the darkness within. He knew that a major way that trouble enters our life is through our own fault, through our regrettable actions, and through the seething emotions that rob us of peace. Paul has seen Christian persecution from both sides. He used to be one of the persecutors. And in those days, he was consumed by anger and by hatred. But now, as one of the persecuted, he finds that he is able to display a peaceable temperament even toward those who guard him in prison. Fear and regret have no, work, have no hold over him. In place of those dark and unproductive emotions, 
Christ has given him only pride and great joy. Pride, like a teacher or a parent who has pointed out a way and this way has taken root and led Paul can see that those to whom he has once preached the good news as news, as something they'd never considered before, were now genuinely living the life, not as toddling, uncertain apprentices, but as bona fide journeymen following Christ with authenticity. How does that happen? How does Christ take a privileged, learned thug like Saul of Tarsus and make of him the Apostle Paul? How does Christ take a businesswoman on the fringes of the Jewish community and a working Joe from imperial corrections and from those two converts grow an entire church in Philippi, which is the seedling church for Christianity in Europe? Looking at the immense gulf between then and now, there is no explanation for it of God. If it's a miracle, it's an ordinary miracle, a miracle so much to be relied upon as God's regular way of working, that Paul can say, I am confident of this, that the one who has begun a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. Mark remembers Jesus himself in the days of his preaching ministry putting it like this. The kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself, first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle because the harvest has come. Isn't it amazing at this time of year when things seem to be shooting up another three inches every time we have a thunderstorm, as things work their inexorable way towards the blueprint that will be fulfilled at harvest, how every kind of seed has its own script written within it in what we now understand as its DNA a script for every successive stage of its development. It's like that with the development of a Christian. What a comfort, for it is God who directs our progress in the faith. And if God is directing, then we shall surely arrive fully transformed. After considering his own inexorable transformation into a bona fide Christian, Paul considers his transformed perspective on life difficulties. In the short view, it's of course very bad what has happened to him, very uncomfortable to be flogged and thrown into prison. Bad things can happen at random, and when they are as bad as bad can be, people can even die. Paul has seen believers die. But in the never-ending barrage of bad news and terror that is everyday life in the persecuted church, Paul has also begun to discern a deeper working out of God's good purpose. In Philippi, he had been imprisoned, but hadn't God sent the earthquake so that the power and the glory of God might be apparent to all? 
That was what prepared the ground into which Paul would then How else would that Philippian jailer have ever heard the gospel if Paul hadn't ended up in his prison cell? And whatever qualities the Philippian jailer had, you can be sure that together with Lydia, he was just the right person to be the founding member of the church in that city. And now Paul has a great story as he's dialoguing with these corrections officers in his Roman imprisonment. Oh, do you remember Marcus, who you knew went to Philippi? I met him there, and you wouldn't believe what his life is like now. Even Paul's flogging served a higher purpose of wrong-footing the authorities, so that Paul earned a more patient hearing, both for his mistreatment and for his Roman citizenship. Fast forward 12 years to the time when Paul is writing his letter to the Philippians while imprisoned in Rome, and he's still finding silver linings. Look at verses 12 to 14. It's all good, he says, because I have the opportunity to preach here to the whole imperial guard, strategically placed Roman military men right at the capital. And because my sufferings are emboldening, other believers. Then in verses 20 to 25, Paul directly addresses the driver of so much of our fear, the threat that if life throws at us its very worst, it could all end in death. Death does not frighten Paul. It's like the Vince Gill song, what's the worst that can happen? Threaten me with heaven? It's my eager expectation and hope that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I'm hard pressed between the two because my desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. And since I'm convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Wouldn't that be great if we could so far get past the point of view that our life is about us, that we could place it completely at Christ's disposal, saying, glorify yourself in me, Lord, whether by my living or by my dying. Either way, I win. Either way, it's all good. Paul's perspective has shifted from one in which he sees that bad things that happen to him straightforward evil, to one in which he sees that the bad things that happen to him are opportune gateways, birth pangs which usher in God's next good thing. Having grasped something of this mysterious way in which God works, Paul then looks for how he can work with the grain of what God is doing. Imagine if we all had such an opportunity-based outlook on our circumstances. Whether he's in prison or traveling on a ship or in the comfortable home of a, a hospitable friend, Paul is always looking for opportunities 
with every person he meets, every day and in every way, to commend Christ. He is an on-duty Christian, 24-7. About two years ago, my mother was in hospital in Nova Scotia with a compression fracture of the spine. It was at that stage in the pandemic when Ontarians were just being let into the Atlantic bubble. And so the, for the first two months after this happened, I wasn't able to go down and see her. The hospital was also closed to visitors, so my brother couldn't get in and see her, and hospital chaplains had stopped making rounds from room to room. But in that wonderful way that God has of getting past prison doors and locked down hospitals, as well as the very personal kind of defenses that we erect, he placed just the right person in the right place as a mobile operative. God ensured that Mum had an African lady who was part of the hospital's cleaning staff to pray with her and offer words of faith-based encouragement. While the chaplains were off duty and while families were barred, this woman had seen an opportunity to expand her day job into a ministry as a surrogate chaplain and faith sister while not neglecting her extra-intensive COVID-19 sanitization detail. The wonderful perspective that Paul and such Christians as these have come to inhabit is that life is not good or bad, depending on the rise or the fall of our circumstances. Life is all good because it is superintended by a God in whom there is no darkness at all. He appoints good things to happen to us so that we might be full of thanks and wonder. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. He appoints bad things happen to happen to us for reasons that are shrouded so deep in mystery that they are above our pay grade to try to tease out. But the faithful live by faith that there are such reasons and they look for opportunities within the darkness to bear the Christ light to others. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, it's all good, because God is greater than the darkness within us. It's all good, because God is greater than the dark things that can befall us in this life. And finally, it's all good because God is greater than the dark motives in other people. In verses 15 to 18, Paul doesn't exactly provide an answer to the age-old question of why God permits the malevolence of human agents, why he allows the wicked to prosper. But Paul points to a practical way forward which allows him to maintain his joy. Basically, he doesn't bother about what the other people are doing. He attends to what he is doing, to what God has called him to do, and he lets God sort out the merits and judge the motives of the other people. Some proclaim Christ from rivalry and envy, he says, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my sufferings in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true. And in that, I rejoice. Now, if someone is really causing confusion in the Christian community by teaching false things, the rest of the New Testament shows us that Paul will call them out and even break the bonds of fellowship with them. But what Paul is saying he won't be distracted by is the kind of divisive thinking which asks, is this person with me or against me? That's not the right question because it's not about Paul. And Paul knows that. It's about Christ and serving Christ's mission. If there was one problem the Philippian church had, it was a tendency to divide over petty things that didn't so much matter in themselves, but which provided an occasion for someone to assert superiority or gain a victory over someone else. We know the kind of thing. The point where someone makes blue tablecloths at the Fall Bazaar, the hill they're going to die on, and someone else leaves the church because it's a change from those orange tablecloths we've always had in which somebody's grandmother donated. <laughs> it's not about the tablecloths. It's the, the tablecloths are the flashpoint that is conveniently found to channel that dislike, that basic personal rivalry between these two factions that are in a, a one-upmanship battle. Later in the letter, Paul explicitly calls the Philippians to unity. But here he just reflects on his own strategy for avoiding the vortex-like pull of such church politics. Don't think too much about the other people. There will always be other people doing what they do for their reasons, sometimes vain and silly reasons, sometimes truly treacherous and hostile reasons. But imagine if the Old Testament Joseph was so wary concerning the evil motives of his brothers that he foiled their attempt to sell him into slavery. Imagine if Jesus had not said to Judas, go and do what you must, but instead had said, you shall not. Or if he had not allowed Caiaphas and Pilate to play their role in bringing about Good Friday. And why didn't Paul protest his imprisonment in Philippi on the grounds of his Roman citizenship before it happened, instead of the morning after? In the short run, these actions would have averted an evil being visited upon a righteous person. But in the long run, it was important to let these events play out so that the many could be blessed with God's salvation. Paul's very simple approach to avoiding the pitfalls of politicking and petty thinking is to do what God has called him to do and let God worry about the merits and the motives of the other people. By this means, he is also able to maintain a joyful mindset as opposed to doing um, to the edginess that he would have to develop if he were doing nothing but checking the dark corners for adversaries skulking in the shadows. 
There was a time when the providence of God, the providence of God was such a meaningful term for Presbyterians that sometimes people would speak of God merely as providence. Like in the Anne of Green Gables novels where Mrs. Lynde and Marilla are always thanking providence for the day that Anne came to them. Now that seems to us a very antiquated and unfamiliar term, but if we understand this term, the providence of God, there is great power in it. Do you share the understanding of the world and of your own role in it that Paul came to after decades of walking with the Lord, that only God hates the world? that only God actively rules over it, so that nothing happens by our destructive agency or by others' malicious agency or by the vagaries of cold and uncaring chance that can surprise or override or defeat the beneficent will of our loving Heavenly Father. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we truly believe that, our anxieties of injury when life has gone against us are placed in a wonderful balance. It's all good. It's all good. And all manner of things shall be well. Thanks be to God.